Hello, everybody. Welcome to a French Village podcast. We're talking about episodes 11 and 12 today. I am here with my brilliant friend, Ben Wittes, who I can't see for the first time because we're recording on a different platform. And so it's so weird not to see your face, Ben, but I know that you're here. But it is great to hear your voice, Sarah. Uh, And I I have a special message for JVL, um, who I noticed uh, in the other day uh, announced that the secret podcast uh, Monday show was going to be suspended until the end of a French Village podcast. And I just want to, you know, express condolences to JVL, who has been concerned, as listeners know, for some time that uh, Sarah's uh, engagement with this project would cause him to be replaced. And now he has been replaced. So I just want to say. I'm glad I'm glad we're we're doing this maturely. Um, You know, that is not why I can't look. Whatever. I'm not going to get into my schedule. I, just, I just, I'm just, you know, I know it's not fair, Sarah. <laughs> I just, you know, he, JVL makes it so easy to uh, to tease him uh, about this that I just can't resist the opportunity. Well, um, speaking of jealousies, a lot of relationship drama uh, in the in the penultimate and season finale of season two of French village. And, uh, you know, despite the, uh, there's, there's obviously the cliffhanger on the show, but I think the, the big cliffhanger is really whether or not we're going to be renewed for season three. It's true. Think- Cause this is the last episode of season two. And That's right. the big question of will the bulwark, uh, keep producing this show. <laughs> I mean, are, are the numbers we're putting up adequate to justify a season three of the French Village podcast? Uh, I think, you know, you know, folks, if you want this show to come back next season, and by next season, I, I mean next week, um, <laughs> uh, you better tweet at the bulwark uh French Village season three, free season three is going to be the hashtag. So, you know, let's hear it, people. Yeah. And go, uh, go, go. If you get a chance, go, go rate us on, on uh, Apple, uh, iTunes and, and all that stuff. A lot of people have been doing it and I love uh, reading them. All right, Ben, let's jump into these episodes. So um, we, we enter into episode 11 uh, and like uh, like a lot of shows, this is one of those where the penultimate – or not a lot of shows, but I feel like um, this show may actually have been ahead of its time in doing this where the penultimate episode is actually kind of richer than the finale. The finale tends to be a little more um, – you know, it does some cliffhangers at the end, but there's a lot of loose ends being tied up, whereas the penultimate episode uh, is extremely rich in dynamics and drama. And so we start episode 11 uh, with Larche in jail because <laughs> he did that thing that you thought was very stupid uh, where he put on Marcel's sort of hat and coat and went out and uh, is captured so his brother can get away. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Hortense comes to see him and he is not happy to see her at all. Yeah, I mean, he apparently has a line that she has now crossed and it was not, you know, having an affair with 
Marchetti, the police officer, and it was not having an affair with Mueller, the uh, SD officer. Uh, you'd think that might have pushed him over the line, the, you know, uh, sleeping with the Nazi who's, you know, killing people in your town. Uh, but no, his line is only when when she uh, manipulates his nephew, Gustave, into potentially uh, into revealing that his father, which is to say Larche's brother, is going to be at the house and then reports that to her lover, the Nazi, and thus gets them, uh, almost gets her bro- his brother arrested and gets himself uh, beaten up quite badly and arrested. That's his line. Uh, so we know, I, I mean, again, we could make uh, analogies to certain Republican politicians for whom the line keeps moving. Uh, uh, and um, But I think in this case, it's more, it's a little bit more personal than that. It's not a political line. He, there is a huge amount he can tolerate from Hortense, but her manipulating his nephew to endanger her, her brother to keep her lover in town is, is a, is a uh, bridge too far. And so he is now uh, announces she is wants nothing more to do with her and he wants a divorce. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, Gustav is her nephew, too. Hortense is the worst. Uh, it's nice to hear that Daniel wants to divorce her. Uh, but then, of course, it, it kicks up this dynamic, which to me is is an inexplicable uh, from a storytelling standpoint, which is that Hortense seems to uh, entirely – Almost, not change her personality, but but she becomes uh, – all of her motivations now stem from wanting Daniel to be okay, right? So she's, 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 she's white-hatting a little bit and she's, she's running around to Marchetti and to Mueller uh, – Mueller uh, and, and basically saying the same thing to both of them, I'll do anything, uh, which of course um, Marchetti takes uh, gross and full advantage of. Um, but, but she is, she's now decided, I mean, after doing the most, I mean, I I guess you could say, uh, I guess it's possible that after somebody really kind of hits rock bottom morally, um, and, and uses a child, uh, to, yeah, try to save her lover, her German lover from being sent to Minsk, uh, what she, she gets religion and says, oh yeah, that was really bad. And now she's all on a tear to, to save Daniel, despite him wanting to divorce her. Do you buy this, this kind of personality shift here? I actually don't think it's a personality shift. Um, I, I buy it completely. Mm. Um, and I think it's, uh, but it's not a personality shift at all stages of the show up into her apparent death at the end of this season, uh, which we'll get to in a moment, she does, she is the one infinitely selfish character and wants to have it all. She wants to be a mother to Tikiero, the baby. She wants to uh, be a respectable wife uh, and have a respectable home uh, from Danielle, she wants to have whatever lover she is focused on that day. She wants to pay no price for it. And so 
she seizes things and people and doesn't want to give them up. And so, you know, this is also why I think she is, um, uh, you know, in the previous few episodes, flitting in and out of the house, staying in a hotel with Miller, but uh, perfectly content to show up and uh, expect Danielle to treat him, treat her like his wife when she chooses to show up at, at home. And so, you know, she does not want Danielle to get hurt. She wants, uh, um, she wants Marcel, uh, his brother, to get arrested so that her lover doesn't get sent to Minsk. And when that backfires and it causes problems for her husband, she actually wants to protect her husband because she likes her life in which she has the husband at home and the baby at home and the lover uh, or the choice of lovers. This is a very congenial life for her. And, and she tries to hang on to it and she tries to hang on to it both from Muller and from Marchetti, whom she, both of whom she tries to get to, um, to intervene um, and then she tries to hang on to it from Danielle, who she keeps negotiating with to stay in the house. So I think her behavior is actually quite consistent and quite comprehensible. And, okay. I mean, actually, that was, that was a good it was a good explanation. I will say I found it weird, you know, the previous episode, or at least in the previous two, she's tearfully lamenting. She's deeply in love with Muller and can't believe he's going to be sent away. And it's so sad. And now she's just sort of like, I can't believe you arrested Daniel. We're done. Does it just seemed a little, uh, I don't know. It seems sort of abrupt to me. I, I suppose I, I, I guess I would have thought that, you know, she's one of these characters who doesn't know or care anything about the geopolitical world in which she's operating. And she's distinct in that from Marie, who has a instinctive understanding of it from Sarah, who, uh, uh, you know, actually speaks from jail uh, to Danielle gives him the kind of moral lesson of the of the two episodes. Um, and from, you know, some of the more, as well as from some of the more worldly characters, um, she lives in this very small world in which there are goods and there are men and there are women to assert rank over. Uh, and she's... And she's not unlike Janine in, in, in that respect. And I think she doesn't start with the principle, this guy is a Nazi, uh, that's, you know, don't even look at him. She starts with the principle, oh, this is attractive, I can get this guy. Um, and I think she's a, she's a very simple... Uh, a, a very simple kind of selfish evil. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess I could see that. Um, well, uh, Hortense isn't the only person who visits Danielle in jail. Sarah also comes to see him. And as you note, 
this 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 episode is kind of buttressed by Sarah visiting Daniel in jail, and then later Daniel having to visit Sarah in jail. Um, and uh, when Sarah is there, she's just kind of giving him a quick update on the kids. Uh, but Mueller walks in. And him being the intelligence officer, he is immediately picks up that Sarah is important to Daniel, Um, you know, grossly like puts his hand on her and then, you know, tells her he solved that paperwork problem for her uh, and, uh, you know, talks about her in gratitude to him, uh, to Daniel. Uh, But Daniel is so now he's talking to Mueller in jail, but and it basically is give up your brother or I'm going to I'm going to torture you. Um, and Daniel won't give up his brother. Uh, and so Mara, so, so it, it sort of sets up the, the most intense scene. I don't know if it's of the season, but it's, um, Moeller then, uh, you know, takes Daniel to his office, puts him in the pretty chair, the chair that I think is, is too nice for torturing. Um, and then he brings Hortense in. Uh, first, he, first he has first he 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 brings Hortense into his room the way that he normally does, and he kind of sniffs her, you know, like does says his his own goodbye to her before uh, shutting himself down completely on her and bringing her in as bait to get Daniel to talk. Yeah, so there is a, um, I mean, this is we've had indications before that. Uh, Muller is a genuine psychotic, or not psychotic, but a but a but a sadist. Yeah. Um, and uh, so those sort of come to fruition here, and it's uh, they're actually presaged in that uh, in a scene in the jail where he tells Danielle proudly that he in Poland oh, yeah. um, loved a woman and yet had her decapitated um, uh, and says it as a, as a matter of, you know, there is nothing I won't do to get the information that I need. And I loved this Polish woman very much. And yet I, I tortured her and had her head cut off. Um, and so it's a little bit presaged by that. Um, he's, uh, we know that, uh, I mean, leave aside whether he's capable of anything we would actually call love. Uh, he is certainly a, um, he certainly uh, has some kind of feelings for Hortense, uh, including possession and possessiveness and whatnot. And yet he is, I, I think, positively eager to torture her by way of torturing uh, her husband and getting him to talk. Uh, and of course, this is one of the more effective forms of information gouging is not actually inflicting pain on the subject, but uh, threatening to inflict pain on subjects that they care about. This actually, you know, the Nazis did a lot of this uh, for those who uh, a lot of people gave a lot of things up to protect people they cared about, um, and uh, you can understand why. Uh, and Danielle, though he has just told her he wants nothing more to do with her and wants to divorce her, actually 
cannot stand to watch her, you know, cut up by this uh, Nazi uh, chieftain. And so he is prepared to give up at that point, but in a turn that only a script writer could love, uh, the, uh, the German commander, Krollwitz, who is in the, in the tradition uh, that the show is exploiting a bit um, and is, has some elements of truth. Of course, the Wehrmacht officer, the Prussian officer corps were the least Nazified of the armed German uh, 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 forces. And so this guy is, you know, doing his duty as a soldier, of course, which may include some horrible things, but isn't a crazed sadist. And uh, he is, uh, you know, appalled at what's happening and orders uh, Danielle freed because he is, you know, the mayor, of course, and orders uh, 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 Mueller immediately to report to be transferred to Minsk. Uh, and so the torture never quite happens, but for a small uh, injury on Hortense's arm, and of course, uh, but Mueller gets his parting shot, which is on the way out the door. Uh, he removes the protection for Sarah, thus uh, setting up uh, her later travails and arrests um, um, because Sarah is, of course, in addition to Danielle's, um, I would say sort of, budding paramour uh, Jewish. Yeah, I just want to go back to Hortense and um, Mueller for a second. They really deserve each other. Um, the scene where he is saying to her, this is about my career, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I, I have to do this and uh, find the, because this is about, but, you know, my career and, you know, you should give up everything. Like the both of them are are so deeply selfish and self-centered um, that, uh, you know, you, you sort of feel like they really could have a future, uh, so, almost sociopath to sociopath. So they are highly sociopathic. Um, she is not a sadist. She doesn't seem to enjoy other people's pain. She just doesn't seem to care or notice it very much. He is an active sadist. And, um, and I you know, I, I think is a, um, I, I, there's no question that the SS uh, attracted people like that. Um, there were a lot of people in the SS and the SD um, who enjoyed their work, you know, and a bunch of them after the war went to Argentina and, you know, and Paraguay and became torturers for, you know, other regimes. I mean, there, there was this group of people that, you know, got off on it. And, um, and I, I think there was a, you know, Mueller is not based on any particular character as be best as I can tell, but that, that, 
quality of it's become a bit of an archetype um the uh, of course made made famous in the movie marathon man by Lawrence by the portrayal of a Joseph Mengele type character by Lawrence Olivier um but the idea of this sort of highly refined uh very fastidious SS officer who is you know beneath the surface veneer of gentility a a crazed sadist um has become a bit of an archetype in um in our uh in movies and stuff but it's got a germ of real truth to it i i mean you know there were a bunch of these people all over europe and um you know I'm not sure any organization ever collected them quite the way the SS did. Yeah, you've got to be a particular type of person to feel like you're just like cool to put cigarettes out on people's skin. And even with – it's funny. I I had remembered this scene because it's – you don't know how it's going to turn out. So you're – when I watched it the first time, uh, I – this idea of him torturing Hortense was like – just really uh, shocking. And I, in my head, in retrospect, I thought it was like they pulled out fingernails because that in my head is like a very terrible form of torture that I, uh, causes me to feel bad in my stomach. Um, but it looks like he was more like a pincher type thing. And he, he, uh, you know, just, just got her in the arm. But like, ima- I, I don't know what that kind of thing where like the person that you've been having an intimate and emotional relationship with, he was just, you know, tearfully sharing records with her to then be like, and now I'm going to torture you is a, um, takes a special kind, uh, takes a special kind. And I would also like to say just as a junior sociopath, Marchetti gets, um, Marchetti should get a nod here for, um, you know, the way he forces Hortense, to to pay for his favor uh and which is which is to say let's let's be frank demands uh oral sex in the police office yeah and it's yeah gross um and and and, and he's got that with the thing about marchetti uh i actually i quite like this actor um because he does this like world weary thing, you know, he's kind of putting his hands over his face, like Ugh, Hortense, and you're sort of like with him because you're like, yes, she is insufferable. Um, and and then and then of course he, uh, yeah, he's never he's never quite um, he never gets obviously to the level of bad that Mueller is, uh, but he's pretty terrible. Agreed, but I do want to draw a distinction between the two. Yeah, we had to do uh, this last week too because I, yeah. I keep going in this direction. Mar- Marchetti is a very garden variety, corrupt, abusive official. Every society produces Marchettis. Um, you go to a big city police department in the United States, there will be somebody who, you know, has abused sex workers for sex or, you know, um, or has beaten people, right? Marchetti is a, um, and the, you know, the thing about Vichy is that it elevates some of those people because it's a deeply corrupt um, 
society and government. Um, but I don't. I think Marchetti is not a special kind of evil. He's a very ordinary kind of evil. Miller, the kind of person who is essentially a professional torturer, who, ha- you know, I think is a is a different breed. And I I think the the fact that Marchetti learns from from uh, Muller, but not the other way around. Muller has nothing to learn from Marchetti. Um, is a is emblematic of that. You know, it's a good point, but I do think that part of the reason I always have such a reaction to Marchetti is 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 exactly why you say I feel like you could en- I could encounter a Marchetti um, in a way that I feel like it would be very hard for me to encounter a Muller. Well, and and. The show makes that very vivid, right? Muller is 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 foreign. He's imported. He is in this fancy office with a picture of uh, of Hitler, um, with eyes of the bluest steel. Yes, um, he's um, he's a little bit exoticized in a way that I think is reasonable because there was something exotically bizarre and evil about these people, but. Um, but Marchetti is literally begins the show living in your house. He is right. literally part of your community. He is, you know, and I, I think it's much more the different, like he's much more the Derek Chauvin kind of figure, right? He's somebody who's in your community, who's very recognizably part of your world and who's capable in a routine arrest situation of putting his knee on somebody's throat and killing him. Um, and that's, that feels much more intimate and much more immediate because you can imagine that it's your house, not Daniel Larcher's house. And you put this person up and he, you know, first he's sleeping with your wife or, your husband or whoever, or your, you know, first taking advantage of you, right? And then coercing sex from that person. And then, you know, oh, he learned that you can put out cigarettes on people's arms and he's kind of attracted to trying that. Um, you know, he's he feels much, much closer to you. Yes. Um, so I want to talk about the conversation you you alluded to um between Daniel and Sarah when he goes to see her in jail um at the end of the episode so like you said um the parting shot from Mueller is to rescind the paperwork so you know p- very polite soldier uh, french french sort of soldiers come to the door and say that they need Sarah Meyer to come with them and Daniel goes to see her in jail and basically says like you're going to a concentration camp, um, but at the time, the the camps didn't have you know there was just this idea of you were kind of went with your own people and were held somewhere. It didn't have no one sort of had this sense of what goes on yet. I think in concentration camps, um, and uh, and she says to him in a way that I'd forgotten. Uh, but in no uncertain terms with the kind of moral clarity, you're part of this. You you help make this happen. And he is genuinely shocked 
to hear her say this. Um, and she, she says, I'm, I'm fond of you, I, I, but you are, this is the collaboration. What did you think about that conversation? Okay. So I want to, I want to get to that, but I want to back up and note a couple historical points about this. Cause I think they're, they're really important and they relate to stuff we've talked about with respect to past episodes. So the first is that the concentration camps that she is being sent to are French camps. Um, and it was one of the creatures of Vichy that they did the roundups for the Nazis. And these camps actually predated the German invasion. We had talked a little bit, remember, earlier about uh, Tequero's father and getting sent to these camps. These camps were French camps that they were that were used for basically detentions of you know, foreigners uh, and in, increasingly of what they called foreign Jews. Now, Sarah's status here is, is finally cleared up. We finally have a clear explanation of who she is r- r- in relation to Vichy law. She is originally from Czechoslovakia. She comes to France and is naturalized uh, as a French citizen um, she comes to France presumably as a child, is uh, naturalized as a French citizen. Then, if people will recall, we talked earlier about the October 1940 Vichy edicts that uh, caused Madame, uh, 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 sorry, I've lost her name, the school teacher. Morhange. Morhange to lose her job. So one of those edicts related to Jews in the civil service, but another of them denaturalized uh, a whole bunch of recently naturalized Jews. Um, And uh, so there is a reference uh, in a discussion with the deputy prefect to her status under the October 1940 edict. And so Sarah is one of these people who thinks she's a French citizen, but then Vichy comes in and they basically say all those people who became French citizens um, uh, recently, particularly Eastern European Jews, you ain't really French citizens. Uh, And these people were the people who were most likely to be killed in the Holocaust in France because they were in fact rounded up mostly by Vichy itself, put in these concentration camps French-run concentration camps, and then they were super convenient to just put on a rail line to Auschwitz. And that's actually what happened to, you know, it's basically 30% of the French Jewish population over the course of these four years. And so the, the most vulnerable of this group of people are the people like Sarah, who are uh, Czech or Russian or Polish in origin, some Yugoslav, but mostly those three countries. And they come in to France in the years before the war, they get naturalized and then Vichy denaturalizes them. And this is why she is subject to arrest and detention. Um, And uh, so, Again, the show is precisely legally accurate as to her status and and 
like what happened to people like that. So she is not arrested for a protracted period of time because the Nazi chieftain in the region, uh, out of as a favor to the mayor and Hortense, you know, basically waves his hand and says, leave this one alone. Um, the moment he is pissed off at them and is sent to Minsk, that protection is, uh, is waived. And then, of course, the French, as we talked about last time, the French authorities, because they are so keen to preserve their own sovereignty, do the arrest themselves, mm -hmm. right? Because they don't, if Germans start arresting people on the street, that looks bad for them. So they end up being, and they, you know, they were like quite anti-Semitic themselves. So, the, you know, they're actually content to do a lot of this stuff themselves, hence the degree of complicity that a lot of French officials had in, in the implementation of the Holocaust in France. So all of this is embedded in the story of the, like, and there are these little illusions that you can pick up. Uh, and that's the actual history behind the arrest of Sarah Meyer. Um, and then, you know, she is portrayed in earlier episodes as very bright and very capable intellectually. She does the kind of forensic accounting. Uh, um, and, you know, she's, she's, it's not clear how old she is, um, but she's uh, very, very smart. It is not clear from the earlier episodes that she is very wise. Um, she does some stupid things like go on that date with the guy in the movie theater. But uh, here she is sort of channeling the filmmaker's wisdom, right? And she is actually, this is as close as there is to a lecture from one of the characters about the moral truth behind this thing, which is you can't get in bed with these people at all, um, or you become an instrument of them. And that is her message to Danielle. You've always been very good to me, but don't kid yourself. You're part of the fucking problem. And, um, and that's, of course, the way the audience experiences Danielle. Like, you like him he, at some very basic level. He's a good and decent person. And he is unambiguously part of the problem. Um, and you can't dine with Müller. You just can't do it. Yeah. And, and, and she's the one who looks him in the eye and tells him that. And reminds him that she bears the cost, that that he gets to, you know, I, I just, th that is, um, you know, Daniel is trying to do the right thing and trying to do it for other people. And he clearly has a very humanistic commitment to others. But it is just like Lucien and Mrs. Morhange, there is a constant... Um, you know, they're not the ones who have to pay the price. It's these other people who do. Uh, and and so it's 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 hard for them to wrap their heads around that culpability. But if you're Sarah, you look at it a totally different way than than if you're Daniel. Um, and I will just – the other thing that the show – one of the things the show does, I think, as we get into these later episodes and things start to move and potentially we start to lose people um, – 
not saying that Sarah's lost. I'm just, you know, that she's going to be sent to a concentration camp. Um, it is sort of gutting. Like you start to realize like they've, they've made you care about a whole bunch of people. And as we move on, you know, we know not everybody's going to make it. And you feel, I feel listening to Sarah, I feel the loss of her already. Um, so, so I don't know as somebody who has literally never watched an episode of the show beyond the week that we've recorded, I don't know what happens to Sarah Meyer. In reality, the Sarah Meyers of the world were killed at a rate of something like 90%. Right. And, um, you know, they, they did actually better in France than they did in other parts of Europe. Um, uh, But they did not, this is not a population the population of Czech Jews in France in 1941 is not a population that lived past 1945 as a general matter. And so whatever happens to Sarah Myers uh, in particular, understand that in fact, um, this is a, group of people that survived the war at a, uh, a rate that should continue to embarrass and humiliate uh, French respectable people like Danielle Archer. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So we have to move to, we're going to, we gotta, we gotta start moving here. The, the, the one other big sort of thing that happens in episode 11 that we need to talk about um is that Marcel has, you know, he's living in the woods um, and uh, the communists, his, his buddy Paul, who is the worst, except for all the other people who are the worst, but Paul's not great. Uh, and they they show up and tell him, I mean, there's there's a bunch of other stuff, but the gist of it is, is they they show up with Suzanne and then tell Marcel, hey, she's the one who dimed you out. Uh, she's the one who dined out, um, Yvonne and you got to go walk her into the woods, tire her out, dig a hole and kill her. Um, and they're quite explicit about how she has to be killed with the two bullets and they give him a gun and, uh, and then Marcel and Suzanne traips off into the woods. Um, they're really taking us on an emotional roller coaster. I forgot how harrowing this, this episode 11 is, um, but what did you make of the scene where Marcel and Suzanne, he has to sort of confront her and decide what to do? Okay, so I actually did not love this scene. Um, I thought that I, it never occurred to me that he might actually do it, uh-huh. um, which made the drama of the scene work not so well. Yeah. I, I knew immediately that he did not have it in him to kill Suzanne. Um, and I, um, and so I actually think the scene didn't entirely work. Uh, the portrayal of Paul, who is from the beginning of his show, of his entrance into the show represents mindless Stalinism. Yep. Um, is, uh, is consistent and maddening in its consistency. It may be a little bit overdone. Um, uh, I mean, he never deviates at all. (laughs) Um, But um, 
that said, um, uh, you know, Marcel is a hardcore communist with a with a, a, a bit of a rebellious streak um, that both causes his communism and makes him a kind of uh, less than perfect party member. Um, and let's face it, Suzanne is one of the most engaging and attractive uh, characters in the entire show. And you are in Marcel's place here in that her, the, the, the part, you know, more than he does, of course, because you know how she was, how Yvonne was actually captured, but um, her, she is more persuasive than the party and he is not so doctrinaire that he can't see that. He's also very fond of her and, you know, they have a little thing going. So he backs out and uh, lets her escape. Uh, and then, of course, Paul wants her wedding ring. So he has to go back and say, hey, I took your shoes and didn't kill you. Can I have your wedding your wedding ring now? Uh, and so it's a, you know, they're all, I, I, I guess I would say, you know, the Communist Party was like the third worst organization in um, in France during this period, the third, you know, fourth worst major organization. But because it was actively fighting the Nazis, at least in this period, uh, we have to romanticize it a little bit. And the, I, I think one of the interesting things about the show is that it kind of resists that. And it, you know, it, shows them as, in this case, a corrupt organization that is willing to kill an innocent woman to cover up their own incompetence and that they don't really care if she actually gave them up. It's just she's the one that it's convenient to, to pin this on. And I think that's probably pretty accurate that, you know, this was an organization that um, we only remember with anything like fondness because the partisans were fighting the Nazis. But at the end of the day, they were Stalinists. Yeah, they're 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 terrible. Um, I, I, I remember mind I just can't can't stand Paul from start to finish. Um, so. Uh, you're, so let's finish up Marcel and Suzanne. So yes, he's got to go. He has to go see her again to get her ring to prove she's dead to Paul and the other guys before they're going to help him escape. Um, you know, he ends up spending the night and then you're right about that scene. Not, not particularly working, but the, one of the scenes that I like quite a bit is one of the things about Suzanne, and this is sort of central to why people don't trust her, is because she's got this relationship with Lariat, who is one of the cops who works with Marchetti, um, and he uh, really likes her, and she's using that to her advantage. She's supposedly an informant for him, but it seems like mostly he just likes her. Uh, but he shows up, uh, Marcel ends up, yeah, spending the night, and Lariat shows up when he's not supposed to, too early the next day. Uh, Marcel's still there. And there's this scene of them kind of circling each other because they're looking for Marcel. And Lariat 
kind of pulls out a cigarette, lights it, hands one to Marcel, and it becomes clear that this is not the territory, that they're like out of bounds right now. They're like the game of 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 cops and communists that they're playing where he has to go catch Marcel is like in a timeout in this in Suzanne's apartment for whatever reason. Um, and they have this uh, sort of great exchange where uh, where Lariat says, you know, anyway, we'll get you in the end. And Marcel says, probably, but we'll get you in the end, too, um, which ends up being true, uh, broadly speaking. Um, so I liked, I liked that scene. Um, and, and then this is the thing about, um, you know, episode 11 is very tense. Episode 12, we lose everybody, you know, like at the end of episode 11, we lose, we lose Sarah to the concentration camp. Uh, we, in episode 12, lose Suzanne to Switzerland, uh, where she's got to go and pretend to be dead in order to protect Marcel, uh, Marcel is on his way to, uh, is it to Paris, um, to go hide out because he's wanted, uh, for this, uh, for the, the shooting, um, which he's been on the run from now for a couple episodes. Um, and then of course there's some big, some big losses toward the end of, of the episode as well. Um, so an Before episode- you go there, just yeah. a thought about this scene, which I also loved, um, you know, there's a- the immediate text of the scene is that they're out of bounds and not in the game because they both care more about Suzanne than they do about their politics, right? And so Lars, uh, Marcel is, has betrayed the party to protect her, faked her death, um, and Loriot is uh, protecting her uh, and betraying the national police by way of, uh, you know, he's willing to not arrest uh, Marcel in order to make sure he gets her to Switzerland. Um, but I think there's another subtext, there's a subtext to this text, which is that Lorio is basically saying, hey, in public, I have to arrest you and kill you. But, I, you know, we love the same woman. And by the way, I kind of dig killing German officers. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a little bit more political. Um, you're, a na- you're a commie and I'm a nationalist. But we're both French and the fucking Krauts have invaded our country is the subtext of this. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, in my public capacity, I've got to chase you and you've got to try to kill me and I'll do my job in public. But when we can join forces over a woman and share us a cigarette I don't have a problem with what you did. Yep. Yeah, there's a lot in that part where he, you're sort of unsure where it's going and he hands Marcel the cigarette. It's a good scene. It's a loaded scene. I think you're spot on. Um, Maybe even more than you know a little bit um, uh, with with your read on that. Um, 
Okay. Speaking of politics that uh, are bubbling to the surface, um, Kremu, um, the Jewish businessman uh, who uh, works with Schwartz, uh, shows up at the school. His daughter, um, you know, is is a, is a student at the school, and he he wants asked to see Barry out in his office and. Um, basically makes it clear that they have some friends in common, that he knows that Barrio uh, is somebody who is open to being a little political, and he's trying to get his hands on the school's printing press. Um, and in the, the, the conversation uh, that they have, you can tell Barrio is interested a little bit, but uh, when he talks to Lucienne about it later, she says, you know, don't get involved. Um, and she says something like, uh, I, I think this is the part where she says it where if I was a Jew, I would want to be invisible, uh, you know, right now. And there's this way that Barrio looks at her where you can tell he is he like flinches almost that this is how she would think about the situation. Um, cause she's, she's sort of saying that she would be surprised that Kremu would be uh, resistance, like he would be part of the resistance. And Barriott's kind of like, well, why wouldn't he be? Like, it makes sense that 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 Jews would be part of the resistance. Um, and uh, but you can see him him becoming more aware of just how sort of her damaging a political a political positioning, um, and also how much he is wanting to lean into his politics. Yeah, it's a very interesting relationship because it's the first time you detect disappointment on uh, Berriot's part with Lucienne other than in her rejection of him. Uh, You know, he puts her, as a general matter, he puts her on a crazy pedestal uh, and... You know, she's this very ordinary, kind of uninteresting person uh, whom he idolizes. Um, and, but here, like the ordinariness and the inability to see, to even imagine around corners why somebody like Cremieux might be interested in getting hold of a printing press. Um, uh, so it bothers him a little bit. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's, again, it's very subtly played. Um, y- you know, one of the n- neat things about Lucienne as a character is that she, she vacillates between, there are aspects of her that are very appealing and aspects of her, her that are kind of maddening. Um, and this is, you know, she has allied herself matrimonially with Berriot for reasons of protection and for reasons of safety. And you see in this scene that she is actually incapable of understanding why anyone would choose to do anything else. And he, who is who offered her that deal is actually capable of political courage um, in these little ways, right? Like singing a Republican song at a, 
um, at, a, at an event or being a little bit forward-leaning about encouraging people to dance, right? But these are small acts of resistance. And she, they're actually showing them as a little bit of a wedge between the two of them. And then, of course, Cremieux, uh, he goes with Cremieux to see the printing press and, you know, quite despite himself, ends up kind of wrapped up in Cremieux's nascent project of printing pamphlets. Yeah, he's sort of like, hmm, but what would your pamphlets say? Uh, and, and, and it's interesting, actually, because he, he immediately says, well, you wouldn't endorse the attack. Uh, you know, you would only condemn the shooting, um, which is a moral position I very much understand. But Cremieux kind of says, nope, uh, both. Um, you know, we're, we're the attack. And, and it's, it's interesting where he makes the most affirmative case you've heard for what the communists are doing. He says, maybe they're premature. Um, you know, maybe it was too much too early, but they're right. They're showing the way and we're not going to shy away from it. And Barrio goes from sort of being against that position to trying to find a way to kind of write write the pamphlet and he he's riffing extemporaneously well i could say this um and Cremieux realizes quite quickly that barrio has a real knack uh for propaganda and it's not propaganda but but whatever this would be called yeah so but but i think this is the other sort of uh scene where there's a kind of moral voice of the show right where where Cremieux, um like as when sarah looks at um, and of course, these are about brothers. Um, as Sarah looks at Danielle Larche and says, you're a good man, but you've really got your head up your ass about this and you're enabling the Nazis. Um, this is Cremieux saying to a Republican moderate like Berrio, hey, you know, Marcel Larche, he doesn't know he's talking about Marcel Larche, but the other Larche, who's an unpleasant individual, by the way, who's not nice, um, and who just, you know, shot somebody in cold blood or was part of an operation to shoot somebody in cold blood, that this is actually what resistance looks like. And, you know, that's a, I think that pairs with Sarah's like there's no Sarah says there's no way to dine with them and not be a villain. And Cremieux says the other side of that coin, which is once you accept that, you gotta start shooting them. Now, there's there may be an argument that that's not right, but and that that's a complicated conversation. But I think that's the those are the two moral moments of the show where, you know, they're both Jewish, um, but they're from wildly different castes, right? Cremieux is a big industrialist and Sarah is literally a domestic servant. Um, and they're both saying there's just no, there's no compromise to make here. There's, mm-hmm. you know, there's either you are dining with them and you are part of the problem and getting people like me killed, or you're taking whatever opportunities you can to shoot them. Yeah. And not to, um, well, I guess the, one of the contrasts I would draw to contemporary politics is, is it's sort of the difference between, 
the people who went into the Trump administration and said, well, I'm going to limit the damage, right? I'm going to make it so whatever happens is less the Daniel bad. Larches. That's right. Versus the people who said, you cannot, like, and, and even I, like, I, so I could understand that position, especially early on. Um, and yet there was a lot of people, the, the ones that I fell in with, who said, no, there is no, you, this, anything you do to help them, uh, you know, legitimizes what is, uh, what is a totally unacceptable um, enterprise. I mean, it's not, it's not quite, it's not quite corollary, but I do see some of that in it. The corollaries are never precise because yeah. the Trumpists are not Nazis, right? Despite the rhetoric of the other uh, of a lot of their critics, but I do think there's a uh, look. There's a important other element of the parallel you've just drawn, which is at some point, if you're Cremieux, you have to say. If the world is between the Nazis and the communists, I'm with the communists. And that's the, you know, this is a French industrialist banker businessman whose side project is an optics factory, right? Like that's his passion in life is the (laughs) lens factory, right? This is a capitalist. And he says, if you, if you really as a society put me in the position where the only people who are shooting the Nazi invaders are communists, then count me with the communists. And that's exactly in a smaller microcosmic scale, the debate between the never Trumpers and the, you know, it's not the moral stakes are not the same. We're not talking about Sarah and sending Sarah Myers to concentration camps, but the people like you said, if you force me to choose between Trumpism and Democrats, I'll take the Democrats, including the, the knowing that their coalition includes AOC and Ilhan Omar. I won't endorse that. I won't, you know, but I, I, I will ultimately ally myself with that coalition rather than accept this. And in a, in a, I don't think it's a terror, like, you know, I don't believe in Nazi comparisons. It's not a terrible metaphor for this. Yeah. And I'll just, you know, I, I, I completely agree. The, these are not, these are not, uh, they're, they're not even, it's not even, they're not precise. They're, they're not even analogous, but they're, uh, but I will say that there are things like child separation, um, you know, where, uh, it became an official policy, and there were people inside who were, you know, trying to to keep it from becoming a policy, um, but who ultimately were unsuccessful and then found themselves in the place of implementing that policy. And I've never understood how people didn't just quit en masse during parts of this. Uh, and and so there there are things like that where people were trying to do the right thing, but ultimately became complicit. And I think that, um, and, and the Sarah Myers scene is that scene, right? Where, where she looks him in the eye and says, if you're still the mayor of Villeneuve at this point, you're part of the problem. 
Um, and I love you and you're, you've been very good to me and I'm kind of in love with you. And I know you're kind of in love with me and I'm like, and I really hate your wife cause she's really awful. And you know, all the things that I know, but I just got to look you in the eye and tell you, you know, you're part of the problem. And Danielle takes that from her in a way that he can would not take that from others. And he then, in a subsequent scene, is much more forthcoming with Gustave with con- about condemning what is happening. Um, and that is a direct outgrowth of that conversation. And similarly, Cremieux, uh, who is the other sort of this other dialogue is the other sort of moral voice of the, of the show here is saying, you know, at some point, if, I mean, again, to translate it into modern terms, if the occupying force, if, if the, if in a two party system, one party is altogether evil you have to be on the other party's side. Imperfect, though it may be. Murderous, though it may be. (laughs) These are the same guys. These guys are not the, you know, Joe Biden. They're Stalinists. (laughs) You know? They are the second worst people of the century. (laughs) All right. Um, We've got to dispatch with a couple other things. Um, So uh, Danielle, uh, after, after all this, uh, he's, he's taken the hard line on Hortense, wants her out, tells her that she's really trying to stay. He says, no dice, you're gone. Um, We have, uh, uh, we, we haven't even talked about Schwartz who buys Maria farm, uh, which is, I guess the equivalent of a, of a, like a sugar daddy pad. Um, and uh but he he after after spending the night there with marie and hanging out with her kids uh decides he's going to go and uh tell janine that he is leaving for good um one of the things we neglected to mention at the end of the uh, episode 11 is that you do see dick cavern uh taking the money uh from cavern's lover uh and clearly giving up Schwartz. Um, and so uh, the, the, at the end of the episode, we see that Cavern is taking Mrs. Morehenge for her operation and they're going to spend uh, 10 days in a hotel in Paris to recover. And she looks happy as a clam. Um, but we, Schwartz goes to tell Janine that he's leaving uh, and I, I will tell you, as bad as this character is, I, sometimes I like the actress who's playing her. She can be, she is doing this character real justice. Because um, I, I really thought she was fantastic in the scene where he says he's leaving, and she first says, "I will, you will not get to see your son. I'm going to withhold your child from you." And then she kind of just immediately goes into a bargaining mode. Like first she threatens, then she bargains. She loves him. She'll if he if he wants to go somewhere else for a while, that's fine. She can take it. He says no, he's out of there. And then she really starts to threaten. She's going to tell the cops about him. Uh, you know, take away the factory, everything. Uh, and he he bails. He has that 
dead look in his eyes of I'm I'm done with this and he walks out only to be scooped up by uh I would I, do you know this guy's name? I only know I don't remember his Canary's name. Boyfriend. He, he's the deputy prefect's nephew. Nephew, right. And I just think of him as nephew, but he's uh he does have a name. I just don't remember what it is. They scoop him up and take him to the river and there's a confrontation and he ends up shot, which is uh you think he's stared the guy down actually, but then he should get shot in the back, which he does not seem all that upset about. He seems to kind of welcome it. Um, it's not clear whether he's alive as the show ends, as the season ends. He fidgets a little bit. That could be, uh, you know, dying spasms, or it could be that he was, you know, it's just a flesh wound. Um, it's not really clear what his status is. He seems like too major a character to be killed this early, but um, okay. Um, yeah, we kind of don't know what the deal with him is, right? That's right, and he's not the only one. So this is like this this episode. They like you you kind of are like tying up kind of a snap. massacre. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, you know, you, Danielle comes home and uh, sees Gustav, and he says, you know, Aunt won't leave. She's upstairs sleeping. And he goes up and looks like she's committed suicide and taken a vial of poison um, or something. Uh, And so so at the end of episode 12, Suzanne is out. Marcel is out. Sarah is out. Schwartz is out. And Hortense is out. And Marcel is, you know, being whisked away. Yeah. Didn't I say him? I said him. Oh, did you? Sorry. But it's okay. Um, There's a, it's a lot of people, a lot yeah. of our characters. Um, so I remember watching this uh, the first time and being like, oh, my God, Who's what are left? we going to do? Yeah. Going to uh, have to introduce, airlift some new characters into Villeneuve. That's right. Uh, well, we will, uh, we will have to wait to see if we get renewed uh, for season three to see, to, to find out what happens. Um But until then, thank you, Ben, for all your thoughts. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, Notice that I used the Sarah, not Sarah, because, you know, in honor of Sarah Myers. I Um, I appreciate you've named yourself Hortense uh, on the on the squad cast. Yeah, on the squad cast thing. I, I, I try to give myself one of the characters names every time. Uh, we will be back next week, and until then, Edith, take us home. Nous nous aimions bien tendrement, comme s'aiment tous les amants, et puis un jour tu m'as quitté. Depuis je suis